Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. yourself, how is it that I'm be, stay authentic, or should I say become authentic, regardless of where I'm at? And I think it's something that I know I oftentimes struggle with. And I'm sure you're kind of thinking, yeah, how do I do it? Well, today, I have an amazing uh, guest, uh, Erica Mikulski. And she is her, she's a chief encouragement officer. Um, at strategically authentic. So I'm, I'm going to bet that if anybody's going to be able to answer this question, it's going to be Erica. So Erica, thanks so much for coming on today to Authentic Living with Roxanne. Absolutely, Roxanne. I'm so glad to be here. So Erica's done lots of things out there. Um, she provides some energetic uh, keynotes and she works with, um, you know, companies and, and people in companies to help them understand what is their authentic lens and how is it that they truly stay connected and energized to it. So Erica, tell me kind of, you know, Erica and I recently met at um, a summit, a Mother's Day summit. We were privileged to um, be on a moderated panel together. So how did you kind of get into this work, Erica, to uh, around, and I, well, I'm going to tell you something, and I, I've told Erica this before, is that um, she signs off all her me- emails authentically, Erica. And I said, Erica, I can't, now I can't use this. And the first thing that Erica said to me was, my goodness, Roxanne, you absolutely could do that. And I thought, what about somebody living truly within the space that, that they teach? So thanks for that. You know, it's funny that signature piece is a a very intentional component. And I love that it stuck out to you because whatever your signature is, and people lose sight of this and, and through a lens of authenticity, I think it's such a powerful intro into our dialogue today. Most people forget what their signature is over time. You don't look at your standardized signature that automatically populates. So I have my, my, um, email set up. So I have to add it, which means I have to tell my email, tell my message that it's an authentic representation of myself before I send it off to whoever I'm sending it to. So I know a lot of us have horror stories of emails we wish we hadn't sent, um, or things that we would have framed differently. And this is a, a strategic touch point that I created for myself to say, before I hit send, is this an authentic representation of myself in this conversation that I'm trying to have in this space. Um, It's helped reduce unnecessary anger in places where it doesn't belong over time. And it has helped ensure that wherever the conversation goes, I know that it's rooted in my authentic self as part of it. So I love that it stood out to you. It was an intentional choice that I made for me, but I tell everyone all the time, authentically yours is a perfect way to send an email if you are in fact, being authentic. And if you aren't, if you can't sign an email with that, maybe 
that's an indicator that you have some work to do. Right, maybe, and, and how many of us have been guilty in that reactivity mode where we are, you know, a little bit, you know, hot under the collar. We're not processing with a logical part of our mind because we see it in our subjective reality and then we hit send. And the repercussions that oftentimes can come from something like that. I think I like the fact that at that point, what it says to you is, am I in the frame that I need to be in order to send that message from my perspective onto the other person's perspective as clearly as possible. I think that's a, that's an amazing room. I think it's something that all of us should do. And it's been useful for me. So if it's useful for you or anyone listening, please feel free to steal it and take whatever credit you need to. You can send people my way, but if it, if it works for you, then, and you need that anchor reminder. Um, I love that it, it can be powerful and helpful. I got into this work to go back to your question on accident, which is how a lot of us find our passions, I think, because we are given a lot of messages about what success is supposed to be. And some people go their entire life without assessing whether or not that message that they've been given about success aligns with their own internal metric of success. And across my work, so my background is all in education. My undergrad degree is in child development. So I started education with the beginning learners. And over time in life's ebbs and flows of experiences and challenges and traumas, I ended up doing a master's in higher ed and a doctorate in adult learning. So I am now equipped to teach everyone from their arrival on this planet until their transition elsewhere, mm-hmm. according to the diplomas on my wall anyway. And through that experience, even though it's not explicitly stated, what I noticed across learning, not learning in the most formal sense, but learning in the idea of growth is that any content, whether I was dealing with, I was a associate dean at a school of nursing and ran a department in school of pharmacy. So I've been in healthcare a lot. So whether I was dealing with an elite healthcare professional or an aspirational preschool teacher, the things that authentically resonate stick better. And this isn't a revolutionary thing. We know this, the things that we're excited about, we retain differently. It's why if you're ever going to a trivia event, you build a team of different kinds of nerds, right? You don't want a team full of only scientists. You want a team full of people who know pop culture and people who don't, and and that sort of thing. Growth and learning is most powerful through a lens of authenticity. So Mm -hmm. as an altruistic educator, the more that I settled into that realization, the more it began to frame my work and the approach that I wanted to take to how I was pouring into individuals and teams in my client base. Um, But I didn't have a name for it for a very long time. I mean, I, I knew the word authentic and I knew about authenticity, I think to some extent, but the true story behind how it happened was I was driving my, I'm a mom and I have two small children. And a few years ago, I was driving on a day where I wasn't working and they weren't in childcare. So it was our day together. And I happened to be on the phone with a friend and she said, Oh, what are your plans for today? And as I told her my plans, she laughed and she said, Erica, you are the best mom. 
because I had planned, I had a theme for the day. Again, educator, preschool teacher, this is who I am. We had a theme. There were themes with the errands that I had to run and the things we were going to do that were more fun and the snacks and all these things. So it was a very elaborate day of essentially nothing, if I'm being quite honest. And I said, you know, I'm not, but I am the Erica-est mom for my children and that's who they need. And I sort of said it as this flippant thing to be, instead of the best, to be the Erica-est. But I would suspect in your journey through authenticity, you also aspire to be the Roxanne-est because that's a metric I know. If you, if I were to ask you the traits of the best mom and then five more people, there were probably a few that we would have in alignment and some that we definitely wouldn't. So, so in that moment of thinking, no, I'm definitely not the best mom. And I certainly wouldn't win that prize in any experience, but my kids know that I am their best. And I sat with that thought and over the days that followed, it continued to evolve this idea of what if then I convert that experience seemingly unrelated to my professional life into the work that I do with teams and leaders and executives. What if instead of trying to be the best or the greatest financial officer in the history of an organization, someone just tried to be the Michaelist, you know? And what would it look like? How would the mental load shift if the lens of success and the metric of accomplishment became an internal concept rooted in authenticity rather than an external driver? Because there are all these folks and across your experiences, you have probably found folks who are successful by most people's standards, but they've arrived at a destination that they didn't really want to get to. And so they look at their space and they say, well, I have all these things and I can check the list of what everyone thinks is successful, but I don't feel fulfilled or satisfied. And so as I started layering that into that concept, into the work that I was already doing in, in professional development and strategic planning, it became the driving force because it, it was the most logical way to ground all the other work. I would think though, you know, to a caveat, I think to the converted or people that have awareness, that's, you know, that's probably a nice place to be. But if we're coming into organizations, you know, that you're going to say, you're going to be the Roxanneist or the Ericaist, and they're like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about, Erica? So how is it that you gauge, and I'm going to assume, I know with myself, um, I do an organizational assessment for readiness to see if people are willing to do the work that I do on authentic heart leadership. With your authenticity work, how is it that you gauge or, you, you know, when clients come to you or you go out, you know, to get clients that you gauge whether they're ready? Sometimes they're not ready, but that doesn't mean the work shouldn't be done, which is a tricky place to be. So then you have to find allies and that's a conversation for a different day, I suppose. But um, sometimes they're not ready. One of the ways 
that I assess is by exploring their existing level of satisfaction. Because an area that I do a lot of work in and speak on and do programs around is the neuroscience of satisfaction. And when I can come to the table from a less perceived by some, not by me, um, from a less fluffy perspective, and I can come to the table talking about data that was seen on, on MRIs and CAT scans and how do we take this neuroscience research and turn it into something else, people are more willing to have the conversations if I have laid the groundwork with that tangible science than if I start from a place that they feel has less um, chutzpah, for lack of a better term, right? Positive psychology is a space I spend a lot of time in. And there are a lot of Fortune 500 leaders who don't think positive psychology is real. So I can't show up cheering all the positive psychology cheers. So I start often with neuroscience and, and invite them into a space that seems easier to trust because nobody will argue with neuroscience data to the same degree that they will argue with psychological data. Mm-hmm. That's what we've, that's what I have found across my career and, and among colleagues that lots of folks have lots of opinions about the validity of various psychological theories and, and those kinds of things, but very few people are going to pick a fight with me about neuroscience data that I have researched for an extended period of time. So it turns out that's a, a small window that I can crack because the authenticity piece is directly tied to what neuroscience research tells us about living a life of satisfaction. There is a straight line connection, but if I start on the authenticity side, you're absolutely right. Some folks are not ready for that. Right. So if you're going to look at um, gaining awareness, like say with senior leaders, um, and let's say you know that the, with your strat plans and things are you're kind of you're not you're off course, <laughs> and you're recognizing that there's maybe not the connection or um, the synergies between your team or teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so something's not adding up mm-hmm. and you're going to come up from more of the metric end to things potentially maybe, you know, um, your incidental absences or maybe arbitrations, or you're going to look um, for productivity levels. If, if you can actually quantify that or maybe miss deadlines, those types of things. So you're coming at, at it more from an objective. Here's the had data on this to kind of get them open and, you know, how can you um, fight with actual data at that point okay. to have them understand um, connection, things like mirror neurons, all those, all those fun things in neuroscience that helps you talk about the, you know, let's use the word fluffy end to what people think about authenticity on a management level. One of the pieces that we can look at through the HR lens is those exact metrics you were just referencing. What's going well and where are problematic behaviors? Do we have a documented record of problematic behaviors? And are there problematic behaviors that are consistent across a team? 
So is everybody missing deadlines or is one person missing a deadline? Because if everybody's missing a deadline, that's a culture issue. Mm-hmm. And that conversation looks different than if an individual is missing a deadline, you know, even if they're missing it repeatedly and habitually, there's still an opportunity to have a different type of conversation. So for me, often people come to me to address something. So I usually ask them why they think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, the starting point is I absolutely want to support you, but what is it we're doing? And, and sometimes they're not sure. And so they've, they've looked at the data and they just say, things could be better, but we don't know even what that means. And when things can be better, but we don't know what that means happens, that's actually one of my favorite spaces to be in. Mm-hmm. Because usually if you can strategically frame some of the conversations early on, you can guide to a place where the idea of empowering authenticity is the only thing that, that they need. Because authentic employees and individuals who feel valued as themselves contribute more and stop or full stop. Absolutely. Bottom line. And we can, we can, you know, cite so many, uh, you know, various pieces of data and research that validates that, that if I'm able to bring authentically who I am to work and feel validated and feel like I'm a vital piece to that puzzle, you know, I'm wanting to do well to the people that I work with day in, day out. And I also want to um, impress the people below me, right? Because to let them know, to see that, you know, I'm really doing really well, right? It's like, um, you know, when, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but um, Oprah Winfrey says that every time she interviews someone, the very, very first thing they need to, they'll come off stage. She says, whether it's Barack Obama or, you know, Maya Angelou, the first thing they ask her is, how did I do? Oh, yeah. Because we all want to know that we're doing well. And if we want to know that and we know ourselves and we're allowed that space, what an amazing space to be able to be in, which is a space that you and I obviously talk about within companies. Absolutely. And there's a layer that's so important that usually gets lost in the shuffle. And that is when you feel valued as an employee for who you are, you are more likely, again, data to support it, you are more likely to feel safe asking questions when you hit a point of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. If you do not feel valued and you subsequently do not ask questions, then you complete a project inaccurately or you move in a direction that wasn't part of the plan. So when I say, if teams, you know, if teams say we, we know we can do more or better, but we don't know what that looks like, or, or teams that are having complete implosions, Mm -hmm. the role of authenticity in the biggest mess is if the collective culture doesn't value the individuals, the individuals don't feel safe asking questions when they're not sure what comes next. So instead we operate through a system of hope and hope belongs in a lot of places, but it doesn't belong as part of your project management work. 
And that's where, that's where the authenticity piece becomes so important to me is if you want your team to have the confidence to go forward, we have to remember that part of confidence is asking questions at a point of uncertainty. Culturally, we don't value the question asking piece the same way as we value the accomplishment piece. So there's this distorted perception of what I should do as an individual if I'm on your team, Roxanne, and I have a question, but I want you to think that I'm confident, I will do everything in my power to just try and figure it out and hope that I'm right. And I guarantee you, you as my leader, don't want me to operate from a system of hope. So that's where for leaders, the empowerment of authenticity and the transparency of value in individuals for who they are has this spillover effect that is much larger than people want to come to work. You know, when I talk to folks sometimes about the work that I do, that's their first assumption. Oh, you just want people to have a good time at work. I mean, that's not wrong. I like having a good time. Yeah, it's nice work. to be nice to have a nice yeah. time at work, but it's, you know, how are you creating the space to, to allow that to occur? Yeah. What I really want is people to feel equipped and empowered to have an impact because if you hired them or haven't fired them, either you inherited them or, or something else. Um, but if there's a person on your team, they're there because you believe they are capable of having an impact. Leadership through a lens of authenticity is about empowering the capacity of that impact through the individual as they are and are capable of becoming. So I think the other thing is authenticity doesn't mean I had someone once say that once the team or once the individuals are settled in a sense of authenticity, then they don't really need professional development anymore because they are who they are. And that is not the point. Authenticity isn't about a finite end point of existence. It is about choosing to know yourself as you evolve and grow and experience professional development and personal development. I am who I am and I have been this person for a very long time, but I am different than I was 10 years ago, even though I am who I am and have been this person for longer than that. So the, the idea of authenticity, I think sometimes gets muddled with the concepts of finite development, mm -hmm. or once you have achieved this state of awareness about your authentic self, then you get to stop exploring or putting energy into continuing that, that growth. So I pair authenticity with the idea of evolution, not just growth, but evolution, because evolution, um, this is what happens when you invite someone who's a nerdy science person. To come to the table. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say my partner is a molecular biologist and virologist. So after our children go to bed, our pillow talk is like, talking about the evolution of the global population or talking about, um, you know, whatever he's doing on a, a COVID vaccine or whatever it is. So we have the most unromantic, romantic dialogue. <laughs> unromantic pillow talk. <laughs> correct. Of anyone that I've ever known. Um, and it works for us because it's authentic to who we both are as humans. Um, but evolution is this, is fascinating if you think about the fact that there are pieces of you and me 
on a molecular level in our biology that are the same as the original single-celled entities that inhabited this planet. Absolutely. Evolution says we don't have to get rid of everything when we're growing. We get to bring with us the things that make sense as we evolve into a new space. So authenticity is the awareness of what you need to bring as you evolve. That's why they work in tandem so um, intimately. I love, I love that. I love it from that frame because the perception is like when you're going into, let's say you can go to address uh, teams that are not getting along, that people truly believe that they have to atrophy in order for change to occur. And what you're saying is we're evolving like the rock, like to your point, the Roxanne of 10 years ago or the 10 years from now, there will be all the core fundamentals that, that need to evolve and go with me. And there's parts of me that I will atrophy and, and kind of break off as need be. So this new evolution can occur and the authentic version of myself will be something, a different iteration or a fractal or, you know, and I may be using that context that in the wrong context of what needs to evolve 10 years from now. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, you can be authentic today and authentic 10 years from now and totally different. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that folks get hung up on sometimes is how do I trust that the relationship that I have with someone that I've known for five years is genuine if who they are now is so different from who they were five years ago. And that's because as they've evolved, what they've carried with them has had dramatic impacts on who they are now. And that's okay. Some of us go through major life accomplishments, major traumas, um, small traumas, a global pandemic. There are a lot of things that are going to change who we are and how we are. And I certainly hope that who I am a week from now is different. And I would say I'm my authentic self today in this moment, but who I am a week from now, if I'm exactly the same as I am in this moment means I missed the opportunity of existing for a whole week. Cause the advantage of being above ground is growth and exposure to reasons for evolution. Absolutely. And you can do all of that authentically. You know, I am an extreme optimist to the nth degree. In my social media space, I talk a lot about how I built a career cheering for other people, that that's what I wanted to do. How I cheer for them will change. And how I cheer for their accomplishments or encourage their difficulties will probably change, but it will never not be from a lens of cheering and encouragement because I know that is who I am. And I know that my client base needs me to show up as me. That's why I'm in the mix. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the piece is no one should question who's coming to the table when they see the list of meeting invites. If we work in a collectively authentic space, and if we work to drive this idea that who you are as you are is the most important, then if you and I have a meeting and I see Roxanne's on my schedule, or we have a meeting with 30 people and I see that Roxanne's going to be there, I know immediately what that represents. Mm -hmm. And I have 100% had experiences where I've been caught off guard because someone showed up and then behaved in a totally different way. 
And I was stuck waiting to reconcile which version is the version that I can trust moving forward. So when there are issues in the team and collaborative dynamic, trust is often one of the reasons that there are problematic behaviors. Without trust, people have less investment in their output and their contribution to the project. So when there is an inconsistent representation of team members, it is harder to have a sense of trust about who they are and what they bring to the table. Absolutely. It doesn't work. So for, for CEOs listening, sure. for senior leadership teams, right, that are struggling and they're, they're listening to you and I and saying, okay, Erica and Roxanne, we got what you're saying. We've tried. We think we have trust. What is the litmus test? Seeing that I'm talking to the scientists yeah. who comes from that frame. What is a good litmus test for them to decide? Um, you've, you've talked a little bit about um, some metrics. Are there some other metrics that they could look at to decipher potentially where to begin? Sure. One litmus test is how often they are given bad information, negative information. I shouldn't say bad not meaning incorrect, but negative information. How willing are people to share with you negative information before it's either incredibly problematic or before the standing monthly meeting that you have with them? So as a leader, when you are a trusted leader, the people around you feel more comfortable sharing unknowns or negative information. If you are never getting negative information until you look at the quarterly budget reports because people are afraid to share negative information, that is because there is not a sense of trust. I love that, Erica, because if people can, and of course, what is vulnerability? Vulnerability is letting down your guard in any relationship, which allows you to show people spaces within yourself that you think, oh, should I have just, should I have just said that? Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So I love that as a metric, right? Which oftentimes you wouldn't think of it as a metric, but truly, you know, if people can come to you and, and really say, you know, this is really going badly. And if you don't do X, Y, Z or consider something, it's going to get worse. What an opportunity, like you said, not under the quarterly review of the strat plan um, or when you're about to go back to your shareholders to talk about profit if you're off to have to have that conversation, but to know that microscopically, this would be invaluable so that you're continually having, you can make adjustments every time you get a bit of information. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's a humility that precedes this layer of trust. And that humility is being transparent about your own bad information as a leader, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a and an email company-wide that says, hey, I screwed up. But if you've done something that didn't go well and you forget to acknowledge this didn't go well and this is what I've learned, mm -hmm. then the culture is tied to the idea that we, we don't talk about our failures or we don't talk about things that are problematic. We only deal with them. So when leadership can openly and honestly say, I thought this would go different. I would like to change this. Or I'm looking at the data and 
my vision isn't getting us where we need to go. How you lead that dialogue or openly and transparently share those moments of imperfection is how far the door opens for others to feel that that's safe to do the same. Absolutely. I, I could not agree with you so much. So, in, uh, you know, exponentially, you and I, <laughs> we, we live in the same bucket and we speak, probably speak to the same uh, levels of companies and, um, you know, speaking events, I'm sure we would have a lot of commonality. Now, Erica, mm-hmm. you and I probably could spend a lot more time, but I'm cognizant of our time and respectful of our time as well. So for leaders or, um, you know, senior leadership teams, that are wanting more information about you? Where, where is it that they can get a hold? The easiest places right now are LinkedIn. I mean, it's easy to find me and connect with me there and, and send messages there. Or on Instagram is actually where I have been the busiest lately. Um, my web designer is also a law student and she's been a little busy with finals. So I have a web page coming and it will be announced on Instagram and on LinkedIn, but it's just not here yet because... I respect her authentic vision of success and it's a law degree and my website isn't as important as getting her to that law degree. So um, my Instagram account is consultant Barbie. Um, Barbie, we, we won't talk about it here and now, but Barbie represents authenticity in a funny way because she's a very stereotyped entity. Um, but if you dissect some of that stereotype, there's a lot of authenticity and empowerment in the idea that you can genuinely show up in bright pink lipstick and go to space because that's what she did. Um, that's how I knew when I was five that I could do anything and like bright pink lipstick because Barbie <laughs> did everything wearing bright pink lipstick and heels. So it felt safe for me to want to do the same thing. Um, so those are the two spaces that would be the easiest to find me. And through those channels, I share a lot about what we've talked about here, tips and tricks. What's one small change you can make in a meeting that can have a large impact or what's a way to think about team building or, or development as a collective that you may have been thinking about differently and how can we amplify or elevate that? So I love giving free information. I love doing free consults because honestly, sometimes people need 10 minutes to think out loud with a person who is completely disconnected from a project and that's all they need. So if you need 10 minutes, I am, I am the one who will give you 10 minutes and I won't send you an invoice afterward. Um, But sometimes after those 10 minutes, you say, here's a six month project that I'd like you to be a part of. And I'm happy to do those as well. Awesome. Well, Erica, thanks so much. So what's one thing I'm taking away? Create the space so the people can tell you what's one of their little um, secrets or things that they're keeping in them that they know could be helpful with you in leading as the best leader possible. So again, uh, thanks very much for tuning in. And if you're needing more information, please uh, book a consult with me on authentic leadership at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Again, Erica, thanks so much for your time. And for everyone, we'll chat again next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.